Welcome to the podcast of Pengrove Community Church. We exist to bring glory to God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus. Our church is located about 45 minutes north of San Francisco, and if you live in the area, we'd love to have you join us. You can also learn more about us online at pengrovechurch.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, this week is a, a special week in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. It's special because we are turning the corner uh, to the final chapter of the book. And now we're going to learn directly, explicitly how to apply all of the amazing theology and doctrine that we've been reveling in for the past nine months. I, I look back and we started the series on January 1st of this year. So nine and a half or so months ago, and we started and and it's been a lot of amazing doctrine and theology, uh, a densely packed book for these past nine months. But now it's, it's time to learn how to apply it. We'll read the whole passage in a minute, but this is how it begins. It says, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. That's Hebrews 13 verse 1. And this morning we're going to be going through Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. If you want to follow along, you should have received a handout on the way in, and the passage is on there, and there's also Bibles underneath your chairs. So that's how it starts, and then the next five verses really give us a set of ethical principles for loving people, for how to handle the various relationships in our lives. As Christians, obviously, all of our relationships are meant to be navigated with love, So ultimately, this passage, I think, is about loving strangers, loving fellow Christians, loving our spouses, and loving God. It says, let brotherly love continue. But why would it stop? When when you see statements like that in the Bible, it's so helpful to ask questions, to, to stop and ponder for a moment. So when it says, let brotherly love continue... You have to ask, is it in danger of stopping? Is that why we are commanded to let it continue? And the answer to those questions is yes, absolutely yes. As human beings, as fallen human beings, the love that we give can be interrupted in a million different ways. Our ability to love people is so fleeting and fragile and inconsistent. Loving people is hard. It requires focus and effort and persistence. So before we read this passage, we need to be prepared to confront the things in our lives, the things in ourselves that so often interrupt our love for other people. I'm talking first and foremost about our own selfishness. I am a selfish person, and you are a selfish person. We all struggle with selfishness. It's just built into our fallen human nature. By God's grace, that that fallenness, that selfishness is being overcome, conquered by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, but it's still something that all of us struggle with. And John Calvin once said that when someone thinks of himself more than he ought, he will love others less than he ought. When we are focused on ourselves and our needs and our wants, we will not be focused on other people and their needs and and their wants. When the most important thing is what is best for 
me, then it cannot also be true that the most important thing is what is best for other people. In other words, our selfishness interrupts our ability to love other people. We also need to be prepared to confront our own individualism. Obviously, those two things, selfishness and individualism, are connected in various ways. And, and I think you can make the case that they are two sacred lies of the culture that we live in. Two sacred lies. Our culture says that first and foremost, we need to love ourselves. Our culture says you need to love yourself. Priority number one, make sure that you are okay. Take care of yourself. But if we believe that, if we do that, we will not be able to live by the principles in this passage. If you make yourself the number one priority in your life, you will not be able to obey what this passage says. Our culture also operates in a hyper-individualistic manner. It, it, our culture promotes this attitude that says that ultimately life is about our personal happiness and fulfillment. And, and that your personal happiness and fulfillment is more important than your marriage, it's more important than your family, than community. Ultimately, life is about me. It's all up to me and it's all about me. But if we believe that, if we live like that, we will not be able to live by the principles in this passage. So what I'm saying is that we need to recognize in ourselves the things that prevent us from living by what God's word is saying this morning. We need to recognize those things in ourselves. We need to recognize those pressures in our culture and the culture around us and how they push us away for, from, from the word of God. We need to recognize those things and humble ourselves before the word of God. It's time to be taught and corrected and humbled so that we can receive the wisdom of God, so that we can take hold of that which is truly life. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read the text for us. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated and join me as I pray for us. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand your word and to obey it. It's, it's that simple to just read the words and to grasp them and to obey them. But for something so simple, it is just so hard for us to do, God. We need your spirit to open our eyes, to open our hearts so that we can truly understand what your word is saying. And we need your spirit to empower us 
to, to give us the will, the way in our lives to actually live in accordance with what it is saying. It is so simple, but we are so incapable on our own. So I am asking you, Father, to help us, to be with us this morning. Speak through me. Anoint my words. Guide my words into truth. Lord, I pray that that the rich wisdom of your word would wash over us and sink into us and shape who we are from the inside out, that it would change our lives for, for our good and for your glory. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this is the big therefore of the, of the book of Hebrews. When you read through the New Testament, you see this transition in, in many of the letters. The first part of the book lays the foundation, the theological, doctrinal foundation of who God is and what he's done for us through Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it talks about how a person is saved and who man is in comparison to the holiness of God and, and, and all of that theological, doctrinal stuff. You often see that in the first part of the book. And then the rest of the book is about the practical, real-life application of the theological truth. So given that all of this is true, how should we live our lives? Let me give you a, a couple quick examples. One of them is the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, it's the letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Ephesus. The first three chapters are, are basically doctrine and theology. And then the second three chapters are basically application of that doctrine and theology. In Romans, it's 11 chapters of theology and five chapters of application. So it's a little bit heavy on the theological side, but it's nothing in comparison to Hebrews. When you get to the book of Hebrews, it's roughly 92% doctrine and theology. 12 chapters of theology, and now here we are in chapter 13, the one chapter of explicit application. One densely packed chapter. It's like rapid fire ethical principles, divinely inspired bullet points for how to live as followers of Jesus. I'm not much of a bullet point guy myself, but some people appreciate them, the, the conciseness of it. And, and the cool thing is in Hebrews, it's bullet points, it's rapid fire, it's simple short statements. Do this, don't do that. But in the rest of the Bible, there's all these different places you can go to unpack the, the depth of all of these commandments. So that's the, the big picture for how to understand our passage this morning. But if you zoom in a bit closer and you look more closely at this section in the book of Hebrews, you can see that there's, there's a lot more to the story. Let's go back a couple verses to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. It says, therefore, let us be grateful. That's the small therefore before the big therefore. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Last Sunday, we looked at that verse in depth and we talked about what qualifies as acceptable worship before God. And we learned that part of what it means to worship God, it's not just singing nice songs on Sunday morning. Part of what it means to worship God is to serve God. 
The very word translated worship is translated service in other places. And, and, and we see this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Think about that. What a phrase. What, what depth. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, worshiping God includes a life of serving and sacrificing for God. But I want to stop and think about that for a minute. What do you get the person that has everything? I think I think a lot of us have people like that in their lives. I, I think of my dad, and and I don't know if my dad necessarily has everything, but I do know that I can never think of what to get him because I think if he wants something, if he needs something, he just buys it, and then comes Christmas time or his birthday or whatever, and I and I rack my brain and I think and I think and I think and I think what can I get my dad, and whatever I get him just is not what he wanted or what he needed. I can never figure it out because if he wants it, he buys it. What do you get the person that has everything? Well, it's kind of a silly analogy, but think about God. What do you give to the person who can create literally anything that he wants? What do you give to the person who owns literally everything in the universe? In other words, what does God need us to serve him for? If God commands us to serve him, why? What does he need it for? Why does he need us to sacrifice for him? God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need you to cook for him. He doesn't need you to build a building for him. He doesn't need your adoration or praise. He doesn't need your talents or your time. He doesn't need anything. But his children do. As Christians, one of the ways that we worship God is by serving others. If you want to please God, if you want to honor God, if you want to worship God, then serve the ones who bear his image. Love his people. It all starts with hospitality to strangers. Every stranger that you've ever met in your life has borne the image of God. They, they have been filled with value and worth and dignity because they bear the image of God. And God calls us, as a result, to love them and serve them. Jesus once gave a parable, now the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. According to Jesus, according to his teachings while he was here on earth, the second most important commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus gave that teaching, some people were uncomfortable with that because they, I think, didn't necessarily want to love everybody. They had their prejudices. They had their biases. They, they may have been selfish and thought, well, let me see if by neighbor, who did, what does he mean by neighbor? Like, does that mean literally everybody or who qualifies as my neighbor? I, I need to know who I'm supposed to love and, and serve. So they ask Jesus, one teacher in particular asks Jesus, who qualifies as my neighbor? Well, in response, he tells the parable of the good Samaritan. And here's the message of the parable. Everybody is your neighbor. There are no exceptions. 
It doesn't matter if you like them. It doesn't even matter if you know them. And that's the message here. Brotherly love is not limited to just brothers. It includes strangers. God loves every single person on the planet, and he expects you to do the same. The the Bible says that God sends his reign on the just and the unjust. And and he expects you, it's, it's a manifestation of his goodness that he waters the crops of the people who love him and the people who hate him. He waters the crops of his children, and he waters the crops of the people who are far from him. He blesses the whole world, whether, whether they, they know him or not. And he expects us to do the same, even when it's risky and even when it's costly. In, in the early church, sometimes people would pretend like they were Christians so they could stay a couple nights for free at a, a Christian's house. Isn't that interesting? It, 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 that really happened. Christians were so famous for their hospitality that non-Christians knew that they could get a free meal and a free place to stay if they pretended to be a Christian. Other times, we, we learn in ancient history that other times people would pretend to be Christians to get into Christians' homes so they could rob them. Or, or sometimes the goal was to find out who was a Christian so that they could turn them in to be persecuted. When this started happening in the early church, you, you might have expected God to issue an update. Uh, like, this isn't working well. I told you to be hospitable to strangers, and now these strangers are taking advantage of you. They're robbing you. They're turning you into be persecuted. Never mind. Be more careful. You should only show hospitality to people that you know. But God didn't do that because his love doesn't know any boundaries and ours shouldn't either. Being hospitable to strangers comes with risk, and there's a cost, and that's okay. Think about Jesus and his love for us. Did Jesus set a limit on his love because it might be risky for him? No, he took the ultimate risk, and he made the ultimate sacrifice as a display of his love for other people, for for the good of other people people. Being a Christian is risky business. Being a Christian entails risky things. It entails paying a price, paying a cost for the sake of other people. But it also entails reward. Being hospitable to strangers comes with risk and there's a cost, but there's also a reward. You might be blessed by the experience far more than you can imagine. Our passage says that by being hospitable to strangers, some people have entertained angels unawares. That is, they didn't even realize that they were doing it. They thought it was a regular old stranger, a regular old person, and it turns out it was an angel. There are four instances, four separate occasions in the Old Testament where somebody took in strangers and the strangers turned out to be angels or even a theophany, a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. And the message, the point, is that you never know what kind of blessing might come from being hospitable. Anybody ever experienced that? 
you, you decided to go out on a limb and, and be hospitable towards somebody to to try and serve or bless some some person that you didn't even know and it turns out to be a huge blessing not just for them but for you that that's how things work in god's economy you don't know what kind of blessings might come maybe it's a visit from an angel but but one thing you know for sure is that it will always be a blessing there will always be a blessing because as jesus said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive and yet as much as we are commanded to show hospitality to strangers we are commanded to do even more for our brothers and sisters in christ galatians 6 10 let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith look again at verse 3 it says remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body now the original audience reading those words or hearing those words would have understood this to refer to fellow believers who are being persecuted it was common in those days for christians to be thrown in prison for for being christians and so we're talking here in verse 3 about our relationships with other christians loving other christians especially those who are going through hard things especially those who are going through hard things one reason for that is that we all know what it's like to go through hard things notice what the author says at the end of that verse he reminds them at the end since you also are in the body so so he's saying remember your brothers and sisters who are in, who are in prison because they're probably hungry and you have a body too you know what it's like to be hungry they're probably cold and sleeping on stone floors and you have a body too you know what it's like to be cold you know what it's like to sleep on hard surfaces remember them as if you were in there with them this is a call to sympathize so deeply with people that when they suffer you suffer too to sympathize so deeply to care so deeply for your brothers and sisters in christ that when they're suffering it causes you suffering too the bible often uses that word compassion and when you break down the root words it literally means co-suffering to suffer with somebody it makes me think of all the times in the gospels where it says that jesus had compassion for people when he looked at them and saw their suffering and he was filled with compassion most people know what this is like because i think we all have some relationships in our lives where the connection is so deep that we naturally suffer when the other person is suffering whether it's our kids or our parents or, or close friends whoever it might be the connection is just really really deep that, that you don't even have to try if something terrible happens to them you feel like something terrible has happened to you and you just care so much and you want so badly to enter into their suffering with them to walk alongside them to be there for them to take the burden in any way that you can we all know what that's like but here's the crazy thing about this passage here's the crazy thing about being a christian being a christian 
automatically puts you into that kind of relationship with every other Christian on the planet. At least it's supposed to. Go back to verse 1 for a moment. It says, let brotherly love continue. This is not a reference to the city of Philadelphia. This is a reference to the fact that when we became Christians, we became brothers and sisters. We were all adopted into God's family. We are all children of God now. That means we are all siblings now. And is there anything that you wouldn't do for family? Is there anything that you wouldn't do for family? The Bible teaches that as Christians, we are all born again by the same Holy Spirit. We all have the same Lord. Think, think of these things that we have in common. I, I've seen unity in churches crumble like, like, like an old cookie at the, just the lightest touch. I've heard about unity in churches crumbling, just falling apart like, like it was nothing. And, and it makes me think, how could our unity be so frail and fragile? How could we be so easily disconnected and at odds with other Christians when we have so much in common? We come from the same family. There are so many things that we share in common with other Christians, but I often think that the problem is that for many people, being a Christian is like their preference for, for Coke over Pepsi. And, and if follow the analogy here. If you got together every week with a group of people who also preferred Coke over Pepsi, maybe you, know, you get together and you hang out and you get to know people and, and you have a good time. But if something goes wrong, you're not going to stick it out with those people. Who cares? It's just a preference for one cola over the other, right? It's not that big of a deal. The thing that unifies you is just not that significant. In order to stay really unified with people, it has to be something really significant and something really important to you. Sadly, for so many people who call themselves Christians, being a Christian is like Coke over Pepsi. It, it, it's like, I like my sandwich with mayo instead of without mayo. It's just not significant. It's not substantial, right? But what the Bible says is that the things that unify us are the biggest and most important things in the universe. That's what sustains our unity, that we are united by significant, important things, and they need to be important to us in order for them to draw us together such that when when you suffer, I suffer too. When I suffer, you suffer too. The Bible teaches that we're part of the same family. We have the same Lord. We believe the same essential truths. We've all experienced the same baptism. We all take the same communion. Ultimately, the Bible teaches that the connections that you have with your spiritual family are, are deeper and more important than the connections that you have with your physical family. Isn't that crazy? But that's what Jesus taught. That's what the Bible teaches, so act like it. Love accordingly. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When it comes to loving relationships with other people, whether it's strangers, your friends at church, fellow Christians, when it comes to loving relationships with other people, the deepest and most important is marriage. If you want a master class in marriage, go read Ephesians chapter 5. If you're married, that is your blueprint. I haven't had the occasion to teach on marriage for for quite some time here at the church. So I just want to remind you, Ephesians 5 is the blueprint. If you're married, you should know that section of the Bible like the back of your hand. And if you don't, then read it with your spouse every week until you do. You should study it, pray through it. You should live it. And the culmination of that passage, Ephesians 5, comes in verses 31 and 32. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, if you're wondering where marriage comes into all this, obviously it's in the text, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and and do not commit adultery, do not commit sexual immorality. If you're wondering how all of this ties together, this is how it ties together. In Ephesians 5, we are taught that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. So every marriage, by God's design, every marriage is painting a picture for the world to see. And that picture is supposed to be a vivid, beautiful display of the relationship between Jesus and and the church. The love between a husband and wife should portray the love and faithfulness of Jesus. The way a husband sacrificially loves his wife, you know how Jesus laid down his desires, he left the comforts of heaven, he endured suffering and hardship for the sake of others. A husband should be willing to do all of that in parallel for the sake of his wife. The way a wife treats her husband should be respectful and loving the way that the church is supposed to be respectful and loving towards Jesus. Every marriage will communicate some kind of message, and a Christian marriage is meant to communicate a message that brings honor to Jesus. Now remember the context of our passage. It's about worshiping. In serving God with reverence and awe, it's about bringing honor to God. Well, you know what does the opposite? You know what dishonors God? Verse 4 tells us adultery and sexual immorality, unfaithfulness in marriage. We all know that unfaithfulness in marriage is, is damaging. It doesn't just hurt people. It doesn't just ruin families and permanently traumatize kids, it brings dishonor to God because marriage is supposed to represent the relationship between Jesus and the church. So if you follow the analogy, when a husband is unfaithful, his actions communicate to the world that Jesus can't be trusted because he's not always faithful. 
And, and maybe the world doesn't see the actions of the husband, but they'll certainly see the results in his family. They'll get the message either way. Or when a wife is unfaithful or when she continuously disrespects her husband, she communicates to the world that Jesus is not worthy of honor and respect, that he can be ignored and disregarded and abused. This is what the Bible teaches. So if all that is true, and it is, if God wants to be worshipped and honored, how could we ever dishonor the marriage bed? How could we ever be unfaithful to our spouses? Honoring the marriage bed, the sanctity of the covenant of marriage, is a way to honor God. So you see, marriage is directly connected to your relationship with God. And so is your money. The author takes up the topic of money in verses 5 through 6. It's an interesting transition, but in the Bible, the word covetous doesn't refer just to money. It also refers to illicit sexual desire, the kind of thing that leads to adultery and fornication. So as the author penned those words about marriage and adultery and fornication, the word covetous would have been in his mind. And so naturally, covetousness brings up money as well. And so to us, it may seem like the author is just kind of jumping from topic to topic, but in reality, it's all connected. So he takes up this topic of money in verses five through six, and I want you to listen first to the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 16, Jesus said that no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. You can have money and have God. There's a big difference between serving money and having money. This is not saying that every Christian has to be poor or that if you have some money, you're, you're automatically in sin. There's a difference between serving and having but it's really easy. Money is a seductive thing. It, it can be a dangerous thing. It's really easy to be get caught up in the love of money, to, be, to become devoted to it. So if you want to honor God and love God and have a good relationship with God, these are the implications of the words of Jesus drawn out for us in our passage. Because what Jesus said is true, that our hearts cannot serve both God and money because that's true. If you want to honor God, if you want to love God, if you want to have a good relationship with God, verse five, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The Bible also says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And there's a little bit of trivia information for you. Everybody thinks that the love of money is the root of all evil or that money is the root of all evil. But notice what it says. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I want you to think about that for a moment because it brings us to something very interesting in our passage. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And what is the root of the love of money? Why do people love money? Where, where does that 
come from. It's just a piece of paper, or in, in these days, it's just a number on a screen. What is so seductive about that? Well, I think what our passage is telling us is that it all comes from a desire for security, a desire for peace. People love money and they want more and more and more so that they don't have to worry about the future. So that if something goes wrong, they know they have the resources to handle it. So notice the contrast in our passage. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, God is saying to us, you don't need to love money because I am your security. Money doesn't protect you from future harm. I do. Do you want to honor God with your life? Then love him, not money. Trust him, not money. Money can disappear in a moment, but God will never leave you nor forsake you. He is not affected by inflation. His faithfulness and his ability to protect you does not depend on interest rates or the war in Ukraine or the war in Israel. God's faithfulness does not fluctuate with the stock market. Money may leave you, but God will never leave you nor forsake you. In the original language, that statement contains five negatives. Five negatives. It's like saying... There is absolutely no way whatsoever that I will ever, ever leave you. God, who has promised to provide for you, to provide all that you need to care for you, like he cares for the sparrows, like he cares for the flowers in the field and they're arrayed with more glory than than a, a woman on her wedding day. God, who promises to care for you like that, has also promised that he will never, ever, ever stop caring for you like that. So we can confidently say, meaning we can boldly and courageously say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, that confidence honors God. When you put your trust in money, that dishonors God. It says, I believe that this is more secure than God, that this has more power to help me and to give me what I want and to ensure my future than than God does. That's why putting your trust in money hurts your relationship with God. God has proven that you can trust him. What he wants is for you to trust him. How many times in the Gospels do we see Jesus rebuking his disciples and rebuking the people around him for their little faith? And what is faith but trust? It it was his constant refrain, Oh, you of little trust. What God wants is for you to trust him. What he wants is for you to trust him with your future, with your life. Your spouse wants faithfulness. Your fellow Christians want you to be there for them when times are hard. Your fellow humans want hospitality. And your Father in heaven wants you to trust him, to take him at his word. Let's pray.
God, would you help us to trust you? You are so gracious to prove yourself over and over and over again. You've given us 10 million reasons to trust you. You've shown yourself faithful a thousand times over. But still our hearts wander and we put our trust in other things. Would you forgive us, God? Would you convict us and show us the ways that we are trusting and hoping in other things besides you? And would you turn our hearts again to trust you, to love you above all else? Teach us, Lord, to love you more. Help us to love your people more. Help us to love strangers. God, you are love. You are holy, you are righteous, you are good, and you are love. You are the source of all love. And so we come to you this morning, the source of all love, to to ask for some of that, to, to give your love to us so that we may give it to others. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.